We're going to change gears a little bit tonight. I know in your um, uh, camp program you have a different passage that we're going to talk about. You have, I think, Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 18. Based on the discussion, what's that? You just have titles. Good. Well, we're going to skip that title, and we're going to do something else um, and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And I changed this up because talking to so many of you, I think there's a flow in the way the Lord is kind of putting the book of Ecclesiastes together for us this weekend that I think would be this week. It'll be profitable to jump and really pick up the whole last two chapters of the book tonight and tomorrow. You know them uh, as a lot of fun. They're called oxymorons. This is, I, love, I collect oxymorons. Here's my list so far. I'll try not to read all of them. You know what an oxymoron is? It's two words that are put together that really don't go together, like military intelligence. Light heavyweight. Light heavyweight. Jumbo shrimp. You know that one. Painless dentistry. Drag race. Friendly fire. Criminal justice. Permanent temporary. You can hire those people. Genuine imitation. Mandatory option. Protective custody. (laughs) I love this one. Limited nuclear war. Standard deviation. Freezer burn. Pretty ugly. Industrial park. Park. Loyal opposition. Natural additives. Student teacher. (laughs) Educational television. Oh, how about this one? Non-working mother. Death benefits. (laughs) Upside down. Original copy. Random order. Irrational logic. Business ethics. I love this. Slightly pregnant. Half dead. George, sorry about this. Supreme Court. Even odds. Baby grand. Inside out. Fresh frozen. Moral majority. Truth in advertising. Friendly takeover. United Nations. (laughs) Plastic glasses. Peacekeeping missiles. Somewhat addictive. Science fiction. An open secret. Unofficial record. And then my favorite one, tax return. (laughs) Oxymorons are fun because they seem to put two things that don't go together, together. Well, we're going to look at a text tonight that does that very thing in a very real and a spiritual sense. In Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6, I don't know what, uh, I think your title said, uh, um, yeah, the happiest place on earth. We're going to shift that to managing the risks, managing the risks of a broken world. We're going to pick up a theme we've kind of landed on in the last few sessions. 
For some people, this is an oxymoron. A happy Christian. And the reason is, they see so many Christians who are known so much by what they don't do, what they don't enjoy, and everything they're against. It should be clear in our study of Ecclesiastes by now that we live in a broken and in a sinful world. And you can enjoy riding that broken bike or you can despair and not ride it at all. Solomon was very clear about reality and the dangers of life under the sun. Remember what life under the sun means? He used it 24 times. Outside the garden, this side of heaven. And as he begins his kind of final descent into the clouds, landing this book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 11 and 12, he comes back to the theme, again, of managing the risks of a broken world, recognizing that we live in a broken world and understanding how to manage risk in the middle of it. But this time he addresses head-on the reality of living when it seems that everything around us is broken. Think of the risks we live with daily. Driving. It's pretty serious, risky business. Working hazards. Flying. I have a friend who is a, an aeronautics engineer and he hates to fly. I said, why? He says, you just don't want to know everything that has to go right for that plane to get up and down. Thank you. <laughs> risks of exercise. Look at, look at the bandages in this room. The risks of dating. Dating is a pretty risky business. For some of you, the risk of walking. <laughs> Not to mention the risk of high heels. Okay, girls, hang on. Can we talk for a minute? Listen. Why? <laughs> Who invented this? All right, let's, let's walk like this all day long. I love to see the one where they roll and try to recover, you know. I just saw in Russia they have an international high-heel 100-yard dash race. You see that? Why? Why? There are some of us who need high heels and don't get to wear them. So I'm a little jealous of this whole problem. The risks of eating. Do you really know what's in the food you're eating? You don't want to know. Risks of purchases. Risks associated with relationships. We could go on and on. The world is a minefield of risks. And King Solomon has taught us and established several undeniable facts as we enter into these last two chapters of Ecclesiastes. Life is vanity. It's fleeting. Temporal. Brings no satisfaction. In a lasting sense. Certainly in a temporal sense. Also, the world is broken, very broken under the sun. We find ourselves in the middle of a world of sin, suffering, injustice, inequity, tragedy, unfairness. But we've also learned that God, in the midst of all that, still maintains absolute sovereign control, such that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without him knowing it. His sovereign control even extends to the numbers of hair we have, according to Luke 12. Now, it doesn't say he knows how many hairs we have. He says he has them numbered. Now think about that. You're 
washing your hair in the shower, and there goes 463 and 832. We kind of joke about that, but he, he's got them numbered. He actually knows the number and which ones they are. As Solomon closes his reflection on life in these last two chapters that we'll look at today and tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow, he wraps up his thoughts and our final questions. In these last two chapters, it's going to be rapid-fire, successive points on concluding the whole book. It summarizes it and kind of wraps it up, puts it in a lunchbox so we can take off. Now, in the first six verses of chapter 11, he answers the question, what's the use? In other words, if God has already sovereignly ordained everything and everything includes living in a broken world, then how can we live with these tensions and with these anxieties? It's a good question. It's a question I have when I face God's sovereignty. I had the greatest discussion with a couple of you guys. You'll know who you are. Just saying, if God is sovereign, how do you be motivated to live? Because even if you're unmotivated, wasn't he sovereign over that? And you begin this, like I went to the mailbox, kind of progression or digression. Solomon answers that question in this chapter. He actually asks and answers how to manage the risks of living in a broken world where he's sovereign. One of the most daunting issues of life is our ignorance of the future. Think about it. Any activity is met with some measure of risk regarding the future. And Solomon zeroes in on the risky business of life in this chapter, especially dealing with ignorance. Let's read these first six verses. Set them in our minds. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whenever a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Is that anyone's life verse, by the way? He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how the bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So, verse 6, sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. Now, You read that and you go, well, I think there's some good stuff in there, but what does that really mean? Solomon expects that you'll dive in and dig into this at your age to understand what it means. Notice that he emphasizes the phrase, you do not know, three times. Chapter 11, verse 2, verses 5 and 6. You do not know, you do not know, you cannot understand, verse 5. So how will you live and work and play and enjoy in the hope and light of such ignorance? You don't know, you don't know, you can't know. Well, then how do I live? What's this business of living about? Basically, two responses. You could give up and live a fearful, depressing, hopeless, unproductive life. There are institutions full of these kinds of people. Have all sorts of bizarre phobias. Arachnobutiophobia. Not... The spider thing, that's actually the fear of peanut butter getting stuck to the top of your mouth. It's true disease, at least according to the psychiatric journal. Fear of hair, fear of baldness, fear of tall people, fear of short people. Fear of fear, fear of everything. 
Or you can take Solomon's counsel and that ignorance of the future should actually lead you not to inactivity and despair, but to diligent labor and trust in God. So as we dive into these six verses, I want to find with you four safeguards, four safeguards for managing the risks of a broken world. And the reason I wanted to jump to chapter 11 is that so many of us were talking today about what does it mean to to live in this kind of world that Solomon is describing for us? What do you do? Well, that's a good question. And he answers that fully in the last two chapters. He starts out with telling us how to have safeguards for managing the risks associated with our broken world. Number one is in verses 1 and 2. Be sensible with your resources. Be sensible with your resources. Now, after you do that, I want you to put a parenthesis because I'm going to give you another way of saying that. Be sensible with your resources. In other words, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Look at verses 1 and 2. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Is he talking about taking your loaf of bread and heaving it on the lake and hoping it comes back and multiplies? No. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Much debate about what this verse, these verses are referring to. Some think it means to be charitable and give your resources away and you'll be rewarded. I don't think so, though that's true. But that principle doesn't always hold true. So I doubt that would be the right interpretation. A better way to view these verses is in the context of foreign investments. I've been picking on Larry today. You can talk to Larry Brown. He's all about investments. Where are you, Larry? I saw you somewhere. He's all about investments. This is a great passage for what you do in managing investments. The wisdom of it is amazing. The reference to water here is foreign trade, ships going all over the the Aegean and the Mediterranean. And bread is an allusion to money. We still use this euphemism. Sometimes we... Uh, These opportunities are to put money into foreign investments and see tremendous returns. And you say, wow, Rick, we came to camp and you're talking to us about investments and returns. And, you know, I I don't even have enough money to, to go to McDonald's. Well, just hang on. The historical account of such foreign maritime or seafaring uh, trade is amazing with respect to Solomon. Listen to 1 Kings 9, 26 to 28. Just listen. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with his fleet, sailors who knew the sea along with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and took 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon, and he goes on. He had a massive investment in foreign stocks, in foreign trading. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 22 says the same thing. But in verse 2, there's a strange warning. No investment is risk-free or guaranteed. You know, you know what verse 2 is? It's Solomon's encouragement for diversification. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put all your money in one investment because if it goes south, you're in a lot of trouble. So he says divide it by seven or eight times. Interesting that diversification is the most frequent and time-tested advice any wise and successful stockbroker will give. Is that true, Larry? But please note, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. He's talking about being wise. Now, this is amazing and relevant counsel counsel for a document that's 3,000 years old, but you might be saying, time out, Rick, I don't invest. 
what does this have to do with me? Well, first of all, you probably will. You probably should someday. Investing is a good thing. And Jesus honors the practice of investing. He even uses it as an honorable illustration. Uh, leaves servants with money. Some invested and he honored them and some hit it in the ground and he dishonored them. I don't invest. I'm barely surviving as a high school student and investing is not my top priority. Or maybe I'll remember that someday when, when it applies. Uh, okay, but let me give you some practical wisdom on what Solomon is saying about resources. Be wise with your paychecks. You say, well, I don't have a paycheck. I hope you will someday. If you don't, you're going to have a very special relationship with mommy. Be wise with your paychecks. Don't use more than half of your earnings on one thing. I talked to a college student. Let me prevent this in you guys, okay? I talked to a college student, and he made about $740 a month. His car payment was $550 a month. And his insurance took the rest, and actually he had to borrow some from his parents to do the insurance. And so I said, now, I almost said his name. I said, now, let me, let me get this straight. You're working very hard so that you have a car to drive to work. He said, yeah. Man, that must be a nice car. Well, what are you spending your money on? Begin thinking about that. That's how you begin managing the risks of a broken world. Why? Because where your treasure is, there's your heart also. You'll never know what's more dear to a person now or later than how you spend your resources. Discipline yourself to save. Discipline yourself to invest. You say, that's crazy. Most investors say if a high school student will learn to put 10 to $20 a month into an investment, 10 to $20 a month, and will maintain just that the rest of his life, he can retire at age 50 with a lot of money. Control your debt. This is a good place for me to talk to high school students for just one minute about this. Some of you, how many seniors? Yeah, here's what's going to happen, okay? I'm a college pastor, and I see this every single fall, and it makes me nauseated. We have these um, rushes that we put on these campuses to promote our Bible studies, to share the gospel on the first week of campus. When you go on those first week of campus, all those, those fairs, you'll always see... Credit card companies. And it's a scam. It's, we'll give you a t-shirt if you just fill this out. You don't even have to use the card. Just fill this out. And, and when you get the card, tear it up. But at least you get the t-shirt. Oh, okay. Fill it out, get the t-shirt. A few months later, here comes this credit card. You have $1,000 spending. Whoa. $1,000. So they run that card up. And the credit card companies, uh, this is the latest statistic. If they can get a consumer $743 in debt, the likelihood of them ever getting out of debt in their whole life, are you ready for this? 10 to 1. That's pretty scary. Stay away. Be smart with debt. I married a couple a few years ago. Kim and I were doing their premarital and they were concerned because they were dealing with another couple who were doing premarital. And they said, you can't get married until you get your debt under control. He was uh, $35,000 in debt and she was $40,000 in debt. And it was $75,000, almost $80,000 in debt between them with student loans, credit cards, and uh, cars. 
Now, you might as well get married because if we wait until you get out of debt to get married, you're going to be old and not want to kiss her anymore. So just do it now. Be smart with your resources. You say, where does that come from, Rick? If you don't, if you're not smart with your resources, life is going to grab and tackle you in a severe and in a serious way. You'll spend most of your life thinking about money and making it and not about God and glorifying him. Can I give you a footnote to that? Learn to give to God sacrificially now. If you make money, give some to the Lord. Not to pay him back, not to pay him off, but to sacrifice. God honors sacrificial giving. The whole point in managing the risks of a broken world is be smart with your money. That's what he's saying in those first two verses. And they mean something simpler to you at a high school level than they do when you get in college, married, children, older, investments, retirements, the whole deal. But you ought to talk to your parents or talk to someone now and say, you know what, I want to know how to take care of my family when I if uh, get married and have kids and how can I begin thinking about investments now? Now, after your dad gets up off the floor, he can say, well, talk to Larry Brown. He'll tell you how to do that. Number two, be decisive in your uncertainties. I love this. This is a fun, fun couple of verses. Be decisive in your uncertainties. In other words, don't be paralyzed by questions. Don't be paralyzed by questions. Solomon is so wise. He knows what we're going to be thinking by the time we get to this verse. Verses 3 and 4. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain on the earth. Wow. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it is. There it lies. Wow. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. These are such cool insights. There's no doubt that the future is uncertain, full of risks, uncertainties, even tragedies, disasters. These two verses deal with such uncertainties and how to act in light of not being in the light about the future. If the clouds are full and they pour out rain on the earth, when God ordains the time of calamity, it cannot be avoided. Furthermore, it's entirely unpredictable, just like predicting the weather. I'd like to be a weatherman. I don't think you have to do anything to do that because they're never right. It's the the most secure job in the history of the planet because no one believes them. Well, it's going to be sunny with some uh, scattered clouds and maybe showers and might be sunny or cloudy or rain tomorrow. And you were, and so uh, have a jacket and have some sunscreen. Even the Weather Channel. I mean, I looked these things up online and it has a sun with clouds. I'm like, well, I could have done that. I mean, the likelihood of there being sun and clouds pretty good. <laughs> Living in the South is, I mean, those guys are just, we just laugh at the weatherman. It would be pretty cool to live as a weatherman in Palm Springs. Well, it's going to be another hot one today. Likely of hood of it being hot tomorrow, pretty good. <laughs> I think that the weathermen just they have a dartboard and rain will kill us right there. Whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, whether a tree falls, there it is, there it lies. 
Whatever will happen, will happen. Switching to an example of sowing seeds and reaping a harvest, Solomon is urging us not to sit around and wait for the most opportune moment to work, but be constantly diligent. The future is beyond our control, just as the acts of God in nature, falling of rain, uprooting of a tree by a gale. So waiting for just the right moment to plant when there's no wind to blow away the seed or to reap when there's no rain to, to threaten would result in doing nothing. There's, he's, what he's saying is there's always a threat, so don't let it paralyze you. This is called solving the complex of Eeyoreism. You guys know Eeyore. I hope, uh, look, Eeyore needs to be saved, okay? Let's just pray for Eeyore. He's got serious issues. Tigger's a far better hero. <laughs> Only the people who act like Tigger actually just did that right now. Woo! They're jumping up and down and bouncing around. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Anyway, um, but he's talking about the Eeyore complex. Seriously. He's talking about somebody who's so negative they don't do anything. Well, you know, I'm not rain today, so I shouldn't go out and do anything. It could be sunny, it could be a sunburn, so I'm not going to do anything. It could be cloudy and I can't see very well. It could be sunny and I don't have any sunglasses. Oh, it's just always an excuse for inactivity. He's also saying, don't be a procrastinator. Wow. If you're a procrastinator, raise your hand. Okay, now the rest of the liars, if you're a liar, raise your hand. Good. That's all of you. Can someone please think, we all do it. What, why do we procrastinate? You got this term taper that's due on the 15th. And you know about it on the 15th of the previous month. And still you start working on it on the 14th at 6 o'clock at night. Why? <laughs> He's talking about procrastinating either of work by duties or living life by enjoying it, enjoying God. Make good decisions and even better second decisions. Don't be paralyzed by questions in life and in theology. I, I know some of you will end up in this category. We have college students who come and they just, they're useless because they get trapped in these theological conundrums and these circles and they just can't move beyond their own shadow of oh, God. Infinite, transcendent, but imminent in time. And I, and I was, uh, I said, would you just go tell someone about Jesus? I mean, my father-in-law says there are some people so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Now that's not true if you're thinking about God in heaven, but if you're thinking about systems, you can get useless. I, uh, I met some of these people the first day of my college ministry at Grace Church. I, uh, I was made a comment about evangelism and had what we called at the time these reformed heads, um, hyper-Calvinists who came up to me. First day at Grace Church as college pastor, I just preached my heart out on the direction we're going to go in ministry. We're going to see souls saved. We're going to see people matured. I mean, I was excited about it. And these two guys come up and they said, hey, we want to know where you stand on limited atonement. I said, well, where do you stand? Well, they went on. Pew, pew, pew. Can you? I just wondered. Can you? Can you tell me where the term like limited atonement actually occurs in here? Because I'd like to see that. Well, it's it's inferred. Oh. I'm not saying that I don't believe in a limited atonement, but these guys were so lost in theological musing. So after this argument for a few minutes, I said, 
you guys, it's, it's clear to me you care about the gospel a lot. That's all that matters is the gospel. It's all that matters. I said, when's the last person, last time you shared someone to Christ? What, shared someone and they came to the gospel and they came to Christ. I'll never forget the guy's answer. Well, that's up to the Lord. He doesn't need me to save people. He's sovereign. And I said, you know what? And we don't need you in our church. So there's a great church down the road who believes something like, well, just go there. Some people think so deeply they don't do anything about their thinking. Theologically and even in living life. Don't develop an Eeyore complex where all you see is the negative. Number three. Be trusting in your ignorance. This is going to take some serious faith. Be trusting in your ignorance. In other words, let's give it another for another title. Don't forget that God is in control. We keep coming back to that in this book. Verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Just as you do not know the path of the wind. This is the picture of the farmer who postpones what he needs to do for fear of, the, fear of inclement weather. Maybe the wind will be too strong. Maybe it'll rain. In other words, they're too reluctant to take any risk at all because they're looking for perfect conditions. Can I get a real associated uh, practical application from this? Bible reading. We look for the perfect, perfect time, perfect set. I've heard, literally, I've heard people say, I'm going to read my Bible through, but I've got to wait till January. Because that's when the little calendar starts. Or I need to wait till Monday, because, you know, Monday, or the first of the month, start at least on one. Why? Procrastinating? How bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman. Literally, just as you do not know how the breath of life enters into the fetus of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the work of God. Let me remind you of Psalm 139, verse 13, following. For you did form my inward parts and weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My body, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. That's mom's belly. Skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. A euphemism again for the mother's womb. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book, they were all written. The days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. His response, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. First time uh, Kim was pregnant with our son Luke, we we went to the um, ultrasound with Dr. Gavini. The first time I was convinced that we were going to give birth to a lima bean. That's what it looked like. This little thing. I went, yeah, wow, that's cool. Until she moved a little bit and I saw this little movement. So there's your baby's heart. Chills all over my body. It was the size of, the, of the, my knuckle, last knuckle on my little finger. 
with a heartbeat. Went back a few months later. The ultrasound. Here's the kidneys. Here's the eyes. Here's the lenses of the eyes. The heart pumping. The throat swallowing. Full stomach. Tiny little bones exactly as they ought to look. Have you ever really contemplated that God puts two cells together and gets you? You ought to think about that. Amazing. How an idiot could believe in evolution is beyond reason. It's idiocy. Well, you know, uh, it was crawling out of this cesspool of organic soup and then, you know, these cells and man. We were... uh, A few weeks ago, we were traveling and we went to the Smithsonian Institute with my boys. We went to the Museum of Natural History. You guys ever been there? Museum of Natural History. And it's just like an evolution mantra. Everything is millions and billions of years in this big, giant column with all these layers of, of uh, how many millions of years ago. And my son, Luke, goes, it's just great. People everywhere. And he goes, Dad, that's a lie, isn't it? And I said, I'm with him. <laughs> so proud. Followed by Johnny saying, yeah, anyone who believes that is stupid. I'm like, (laughs) just crack up. Followed by Mark, I want to see the T-Rex. It was great. (laughs) The last half of this verse gives an explanation of what Solomon's illustrating. So you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Point being, God does things you don't understand. Are you willing to accept that and live with the tension of ignorance? No one ever really knows exactly how God works. That's the issue Solomon is pressing. Unpredictability of the wind, the mystery of developing fetus. Merely real-life examples of ways God makes such phenomenon actually Everything happened. What's the point? Some aspects of God's working on earth defy explanation. Commentator Michael Eaton said it like this. The life of faith does not remove the problem of ignorance. Rather, it enables us to live with it. I like that. Faith flourishes in the mystery of providence. It doesn't abolish faith. So what do we do practically with that truth? How about this? Remember God. Remember God in the little things, in the big things. I cannot overstate what he's saying here. Remember the work of God and that it's working behind everything. God never stops looking at the works in your life. Never. He never forgets you. Never looks away from you. Trust his timing. Trust his goodness. Study and meditate on his sovereign control. A fourth safeguard for managing the risk of a broken world. Be responsible in your responsibilities. Be responsible in your responsibilities. In other words, don't just sit there. Do something. Verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. 
For you do not know where the morning or evening sowing will succeed, or where the both of them alike will be good. He's saying be active anytime, all the time, especially in the development of your theology of figuring out God's sovereignty. Don't be idle. What did our parents tell us? What did mom tell us? Being idle is the devil's workshop. Probably that too. But I told you a lot of things. Yeah, she told me to tuck in my shirt. <laughs> Being idle is the devil's workshop. You know, that point is so true. Very few people who are working hard at glorifying the Lord find themselves in debilitating sin. But the point is, if we're never sure which endeavors will succeed, because it all depends on the sovereign control of God, focus on your responsibility at hand and don't dwell on what you don't know. You cannot calculate the intimate, infinite details of your actions and decisions but you can simply be responsible with your daily responsibilities. Here it is, ready? We've kind of been in the, in the top story. Let's go down to the living room on the first floor, okay? Is it fair to say, here's, here's for what you can discuss in your, in your small groups tonight. Is it fair to say that high schoolers struggle with being responsible? You know why? Can, can I just be a loving friend, not even... Pastor Rick for just a minute. Most of you are utterly, utterly, phenomenally, expressively, extensively, here's the word, unaware. So what do you mean by that? Godliness produces awareness. Awareness of God Awareness of responsibility, awareness of others, awareness of selfishness. In other words, you're aware of what's going on behind you and you're responding in a godly way. Ungodliness only thinks about me. It pulls out the me idol with with your picture on it and bows to every day. All I care about is me. I saw it today. I'm just going to beat you up a little bit. In the lunchroom, a bunch of guys are just, yeah, cool, high five, open the door, and it slams around these two girls. Hi. Sorry. Come on, guys, have a clue. Be aware of people around you. Maturity is most defined socially and spiritually by awareness. I think that's predominantly what Solomon is saying. Be aware. Be aware of what you're doing. Be aware of what you're not doing. Have a conscious control over not just your thoughts, but over your actions. Are you aware of of your space in this world and how it interacts with other people? Most of us are aware of everyone else's space in this world and how it interacts with us. That's called being a student. Maturity begins to move beyond that. Every now and then you find that rare high schooler who is so aware of everything. Yeah, I saw it today in the lunchroom. Hey, can I take your plate? Yeah, sure. And somebody lets you take it without even to thank you. Let's be aware. Be aware of what's going on around you so that you can serve, so that you can minister, so that you can pray, so that you can give, so that you can care. Practically, what does that mean? Implement the do it now principle. Do the hardest things first. 
Be aware of what you need to do. Don't be ignorant of what you're supposed to do. And deal with it. Have a plan. Maybe have a plan and a planner. I never forget the first time I bought a Franklin planner. I went down the Franklin Covey store. They give pastors a discount. So I, I bought the farm. I got this really neat binder and all these inserts and these pages and budgets and, and uh, calendar things and planning instruments and dividers. And I had this thing and it was great. And I got home and I wrote down everything I needed to do for the whole week. Next day, I forgot to look at it. There was something in me that said, if I write it down, then it's just as good as doing it. Plan your work and work your plan. Map your life out and submit it to the providence of God. What's your plan for your life? Solomon is saying be wise with your resources, with your life. What's your plan for it? Talked to a guy recently who said, Rick, he's going into the ministry. I want to be an expert in the Bible. I want to be a man of one book. I want to read the Bible. I want to know the Bible. I want anyone in my church, when I'm a pastor, to be able to come to me and I'll be the resident expert in Scripture. And I'm like, wow. He was about that passionate of it. I said, what are you doing now to familiarize yourself with the Bible? He said, oh, I'm in seminary. I'll do that after I get out of seminary. You want to know your Bible? Here's a big hint. Ready? I don't want anybody to hear this. I was using an illustration with a group of college students. I said, yeah, it's like when, uh, you know, the axe head floated. And they go, what? I said, yeah, you know, the axe head floated. Second Kings chapter 6. Seminary students dropped the axe head and it floated up. And they're like, what are you talking about? Don't you remember when they drops the axe head in the water? Couldn't find it. It was borrowed. He needed to get, and God through uh, uh, Elisha made it float to the surface. I've never read that, but it's in first Kings, second Kings rather. Yeah, Second Kings, I'm going to make sure. And then I was quoted a, a, a verse from Amos to a, to a college student one time who says, <laughs> there's no book called Amos in the Bible. <laughs> I'm making that up. Be sensible with your resources. Be decisive in your uncertainties. Be trusting in your ignorance. Be responsible in your responsibilities, which means being aware. Aware of God, aware that he's here, aware of the people around you, aware of your surroundings, and being mature. You know what this is all about? Growing up. That's what it's about. In the history of the world, most people, by the time they were your age, had two or three kids and a job that was going to last them the rest of their life. Would you be ready for that kind of commitment with your maturity? I understand school slowed you down and being financially able to do that. In your maturity, are you pursuing maturity in these areas? These things will just be suggestions as good as a show at, show of Oprah. Unless all of this is motivated because you love Jesus Christ. So when you talk about these things tonight, don't just talk about doing better and trying harder. Talk about pleasing Him more.
the best part of this whole book is tomorrow morning and tomorrow night. I'm going to tell you this. Let me just give you a little preview. Tomorrow morning is going to rock your world. Not by what I'm going to say, but by what Solomon is going to say. You're going to hear what he says, and you're going to say, I didn't, I had no idea that was a command in the Bible. And then tomorrow night, we're going to wrap it all together. Father, thank you for this time this evening to think about being mature, being responsible with theology, with life. Make these students mature by making them aware. Aware of their surroundings, aware of you, aware of their money, aware of their uncertainties, aware of the resource they have in prayer and in the Spirit. Lord, it's time for these students to grow up. Make them grow up before you to be responsible and mature men and women ready to lead the next generation of those who want to glorify your name. Amen.